Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, my guest is the American journalist and novelist Carl Hyerson, who speaks to me from Florida. And his new book is not fiction. Well, it's, it's something in between. It's called Assume the Worst, The Graduation Speech You'll Never Hear, which is a short and dismayingly dark little slice of advice for imaginary graduates. Carl, welcome. Can I ask, I mean, why would you write a graduation speech that nobody will ever hear? <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. My agent had sent me a couple of speeches. In, in America, they, they often ask, for some reason, they ask writers to give graduation speeches. And she represented people like George Saunders and Anna Quinlan, who had given these very clever, moving, uplifting graduation speeches that were bound into these beautiful little volumes. And every every spring, uh, graduation season, commencement season, they sell them here. And she said, uh, she said to me, you ought to do something like this. And I said, are you crazy? If I, if I wrote the speech I wanted to write, nobody would ever ask me to give it. And she said, basically, no, but I bet I can get it published. <laughs> so that was the that was the motivation. And also, Sam, my own my 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 youngest son, who is not going to he, he's he's graduating high school. He's going to college in the fall. This was sort of meant for college kids, but he's always read my stuff. And I gave it to him to read. And he and his uh, like minded uh, friends all agreed it was uh, wor- worthy advice. So I went ahead with it. Oh, good. I mean, it is weird. And it seems like it's in the last few years that, as you say, they've become this the commencement speech has become a sort of major genre, almost kind of sub-branch of self-help. You know, you see Steve Jobs's commencement speech going yeah. around the world, David Foster Wallace's, you know, even Barbara Bush at Wellesley. You know, there's a there's a lot of these things that get a huge, huge amount of traction. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, I can't, I honestly can't imagine that a, a room full of, you know, 5,000 young people who are ready to, to launch themselves into the real world uh, with with all due respect, want to sit and listen to what a, a writer has to say, or even the late Barbara Bush has to say. I mean, there, in this country, it's almost a little bit of an industry where they're, you know, they're scrapping around for graduation speakers. And of course, someone like Steve Jobs, who was, you know, an ideal sort of figure to have there. But most writers, I have to say, don't live normal lives and don't have a, a normal outlook. And, and especially after, you know, I've been in journalism my whole life as well as writing fiction. And you don't you don't come out of a career in journalism with any real hope for humanity. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's it's impossible. And all I, I just would advise you to, today to read the headlines in The Washington Post or The New York Times or the Chicago Tree anywhere living in our country. It's it's hard to put down the paper and say, oh, man, it's going to be a great day. <laughs> true enough. True enough. Now, of these kind of graduation speeches, are there any that you sneakingly admire, or do you think they're kind of all bullshit? Well, no, I don't think they're all bullshit. I think they reflect accurately the personality of the of the folks, and I think they mean well. And I think they there. And even in mine, even in assume the worst, there's an element of hope for kids. I mean, what I say in there is, look, don't believe this 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 bullshit that you can be anything you want to be. You can't be anything want to. You, you're never going to play guitar in this E Street band with Bruce Springsteen. So just give it up. But you can still you can still be a great guitarist you, or you can still be a great musician. You know, it, it's just a kind of a reality check. But so, 
I understand wanting to send kids walking out of the of the arena with their holding their diplomas, thinking the, the whole world's waiting for them. And my point is the whole world is waiting, you know, to kick them in the ass if they're not careful. And, and it's just to be alert, be wary, understand understand the limitations and understand your own limitations yeah i mean you you do engage with the genre don't you because you you say you know here are all these lame platitudes that you always hear in commencement speeches and you've got four of them haven't you and the first one's you know (laughs) yes live each day as if it's your last oh that's such that's such rubbish and I point out that that's that's a great philosophy if you're a Labrador retriever, <laughs> but the, but in the real world there is no carefree life. And if you live each day as if it's your last, you're going to end up sleeping in a dumpster <laughs> uh, somewhere. And so, you know, I mean, that's just nobody buys that stuff anymore. You, I, my, I, what I tell the kids in here is live each day as if your rent is due tomorrow, and you know, work your butts off and have fun, but. Don't be under this illusion that every second of every day has to be bliss because that's just misleading. I mean, I mean, it's just it just isn't that isn't true. It's not true for anyone. I, I'm 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 sure J.K. Rowling has some stress in her life. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter how successful and wonderful uh, you are at your job. The, the real world, you know, is going to take a toll. Yeah. You you also say, which are sort of two allied platitudes, you know, try to find goodness in everyone and don't be quick to judge others. <laughs> well, that's first of all, it's a waste of time to try to find good in everyone you meet because it's just it's time. It's exhausting. If, if within the first five minutes of having a cup of coffee with someone, if you can't see that they're a good, decent person with something to offer, get up and leave the Starbucks because you're wasting your time. I mean, the, the life is short, move on. But this idea that you can, you can carefully mine the, the, the nuggets of, uh, of gold from someone who is at least on the outside an asshole is, is, is just a waste of time. You, why do that? You can find really good people who are already, you know, uh, manifestly good people. Why dig around? And, and you, you know, your life is not a salvage operation for other people's souls. It's just, it's, you've, got, you've got too much to do. Get on with it. Yeah. It strikes me that yours is a sort of contribution to what seems like a kind of a small but, but necessary movement to kind of kick back against a sort of this kind of cult of positive thinking that particularly seems to be prevalent in the States, though it's... Yeah. It, it, I mean, it is. I'm thinking Barbara is. Ehrenreich does something similar in Smile or Die, doesn't she? Yeah, Sam, I was going to say that I, the cult of positive thinking is, has, a, has, has taken a hit the last couple of years since the, uh, the election in, in 2016. <laughs> I think that uh, a lot of people have had to sort of recalibrate because uh, for, for many, many, many Americans, the unthinkable occurred and, and they, they sailed into election day on a wave of optimism uh, that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. And, and I don't think many of them have still recovered. It, it, there's, there's haunted looks everywhere you go in America today. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, again, your duty, if you're going to get up and talk to kids, first of all, they see through all the BS right away. So you, you can get up and give a spiel that says you can do this, you can, or you can get up and you can tell based on your own experiences and based, in my case, on reporting and covering this just the human condition for for 40 odd years 
that this is what you're going to face when you're out there. And these are the skills you need. And these are the, the, these are the instincts and the reflexes you need to get through. And I think kids will respect that. Now, having said that, no one's ever going to ask me to give this speech, but, but at least I did get it into print. Yeah. I mean, you say, you know, there's a sort of your worldview has been very shaped by your experience in journalism, you know, in kind of, as you say, reporting on the human condition. Has, I mean, there's always seemed to me to be quite a connection between your journalism and your fiction, because your fiction also is, you know, it's often in some ways, albeit a kind of exaggerated and burlesque one, you know, reporting on the real world, reporting on what you find. And, you know, Florida is obviously fertile ground for... <laughs> yeah. I think in my case, the, the fiction novels have been my therapy. Uh, you know, you could go out and cover a news story and it's impossible to be a young reporter as I was in South Florida. And I mean, crime was a daily part of your beat, whether it was corruption, whether it was homicide, whether it was worse than homicide and all of that. So it does darken you. And then and also just seeing how politics and government works uh, certainly uh, is depressing. So the, the books to me were always an outlet. I could take, I could take things that I couldn't express in a, in a legitimate news story and turn them into this wild fiction. And the only, the, the only drawback has been that almost everything I've written in fiction has then come to pass in real life in Florida. And I, I can't, I can't stay ahead of the curve of depravity. Uh, like I used to be able to do years ago. Now, everything you write is, is probably going to happen within the next few months, uh, no matter how crazy the scenario is. But yeah, there's a definite connection. The, 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 the journalism fueled, has fueled the novels in a creative way and in a, for me, a therapeutic way so that I could at least have a release for some of the some of the things I was feeling, and in this book, you know, in this little graduation book, I, I think I was able to be pretty honest about, you know, how at least I looked at the world and 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 how I I wanted my kids to 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 be prepared for it. But at the same time, yeah, it isn't it isn't uh, all all sunny, and and nobody's going to be skipping out of the arena. <laughs> no, now, one of you. Less well-known books, I think, but but one of my favourites actually is an early non-fiction book, Team Rodent, which is, you know, this absolutely hair-raising description of Disney's operations in Florida, and I guess the eighties and early nineties by now, isn't it? And yeah, that was a that was that was a fun book, Sam, because they said they were they were doing this series of books on they were getting so-called prominent people to write. They're very short books. I think it was like only 25,000 or 30,000 words. And and they said, you know, just it's like a long, long essay and, and you can rant. Is there anything you want to rant about? And I said, well, yeah, I'd like to do something on Disney. And and this wasn't a personal thing. And it wasn't just Disney World. It was the whole Disneyfication of, of culture. And that went right. I think I started the book in Times Square which used to be, you know, just the sle one of the sleaziest places on the planet. And, and D Disney had sort of tight was had gotten there and put in their theater and they, with the Lion King had been playing there for, you know, eight decades. And, and it was a whole different there was a whole different vibe to Times Square, you know, instead of the porn, the, you know, the porn shops and the video arcades and all that. So I just started with the whole thing of Disney's view of the world and that the world never lived up to Disney. And I wrote about stuff like at the, at the, at the Disney World here in Florida, the, the lakes on this beautiful piece of property in Lake Buena Vista were not showing up uh, blue enough in the promotional photograph because they're tannic, they're dark water lakes by nature. 
So Disney had scraped out all the natural bottom and sides of the lake to put in white sand so that it looked blue. The water would look more blue to the tourists and to the uh, in the advertising. But they literally had said, no, that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God, that's not good enough. That lake you got there, we're going to make it better. And I mean, that's that was their strategy. Nature never measured up to what, what Disney wanted the world to be. But that that kind of Disneyfication you describe, I mean, it does seem kind of weirdly precedent because you know, in Florida, in Disney, this kind of conjunction between showbiz and politics and the kind of creation of a new reality does seem to have, you know, spread out into the world. I mean, do you see, you know, there being a slight continuity between your beat and what we're seeing now in the, you know, a Trump presidency and a kind of showbiz political world? The showbiz, absolutely. That's been the most, you know, I mean, it's almost like, uh, you know, Kurt Vonnegut and Tom Wolfe and uh, all rolled into one, you know, gargoyle in the White House. You know, I mean, one one television, you know, he's a TV personality. And and now we see other TV personalities in our country talking about running for office. I'm not referring to Oprah because I think she's too smart enough to run. But 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 others are popping up based on their celebrity that 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 qualifies them. And the sad thing is there are people that will vote for them just because they like their talk show or they like the reality show. But that's the sort of thing that 25 years ago, you would have, you would have set up Donald Trump as a satirical figure in a novel. I mean, if you're a writer, that's who you would say, if you're writing a satirical novel set in the future, you would invent a, 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 a gas bag with orange hair to be the next president. And then then this is what I'm talking about. Then it happens. And now where do you go as a writer? Where do you go as a humorist, someone who specializes in satire? How do you improve upon what, uh, for, for humorous purposes, what's really happening? Well, this is, you know, I was going to wheel out the old Tom Lehrer quote about, you know, satire dying when Kissinger won the Peace Prize. I mean, <laughs> That's you, a great line. You, You've said that you're that you know you feel like your satirical work is being kind of outpaced by reality. Is this putting a dent in the way you write fiction now a bit? I, I find it I find it a more of a a struggle to sort of set the bar where I think satire should be, and then I find myself racing to get there before the the events I'm inventing really occur. I find myself trying to push to get it done and get it in print before something like that real, really happens. The novel I'm working on now, uh, that my great fear is that it's going to be eclipsed by, by something uh, that, that happens in real life in this country. And, and um, so, yeah, I, do, I, think it's, I think it gets harder as, as the world gets more bizarre, and especially as America gets, gets more bizarre and divided and violent. I, I believe it, it, it's going to be harder and harder to, to do what what you know people like i myself try to do and tom wolf and other people that you know you're specializing in what was once known as satire and now it becomes documentary i mean you've done 40 years in as you say in journalism how i mean it's a very big question but how do you think journalism has changed i mean some people are saying that in some ways old-fashioned journalism has been reinvigorated by this you know, post-truth world and other sort of challenges that, you know, politicians who don't play by the old rules present. 
Um, do you feel that way? I think I think it's been I, I do. I do. I agree with some of that because I see a lot of fire. The, the, the sad thing is what's happened to the newspaper business because of the Internet and the whole shift in the, the advertising business model. But I think online people always say, well, why would I be a reporter? Newspapers are dying off. But there's you'll be a reporter online, a legitimate reporter with editors, not a, just a blogger who sits in a room in a trench coat making stuff up. But I'm talking about legitimate journalists and uh, writing. The, the Internet uh, doesn't can't exist without content. And there's and more than ever, there's a need for legitimate journalists, columnists, uh, philosophers, writers, people to be contributing to that. Now, can they make money? Is there a, is there a way to monetize that kind of news delivery is the big question. I don't know. And I'm not skilled enough to know. But I do know that the truth is a more precious commodity right now. Truth and facts are than ever in my lifetime. And I, you know, when I got into the, the year I got into the business, Watergate, it was 1974. I got became a reporter. I think it was in March. I got my first reporting job. And in August, Richard Nixon resigned. And it was the height of Woodward and Bernstein and Watergate. And it was a very exciting, idealistic time. And I'm feeling some of that again, because Trump is not nearly as clever as Nixon. And he hasn't surrounded himself with the, 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 uh, the as smart of people as Nixon had around him. And uh, the country didn't think we were going to survive Nixon. I remember Watergate and the Saturday Night Massacre. I remember a lot of us thought the whole democracy is going to crumble because of this, this guy in the White House. I'm hearing the same kind of fears now, but I don't think the democracy is going to crumble. These guys are clumsy and not very slick, and they make mistakes every day that Richard Nixon was too smart to make. So I think, but they have to have the journalists on their, you know, nipping at their heels. And I think uh, I, I see, I do see an energy, uh, an energized press because there's so much there that we don't know and that we know is there. And uh, it's it's an exciting time and also, you know, obviously a scary time. Was Watergate one of the things that got you got you started? I mean, was that what made you think I'm going to become a reporter? You know what? I was. Uh, yeah, I think two things. I think the Vietnam War and I think Watergate. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to write and I knew by by probably when I was, you know, 17 that I wanted to be. Uh, work in newspapers. I didn't know, or, or journalism. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wrote, I wrote satirical columns in um, college, like I do now for the Herald all these years later. And I enjoyed those very much. But like you just said, I mean, we, you had Kissinger as a target. You had Alderman Early. You had the whole fiasco. And then you had the horrors of Vietnam going on at the time. And I had my draft number. And, and then I also had a small child at the time. I mean, there was a lot of, I, I remember that vividly. But I do think that contributed to, to a, a, really a whole generation of, of young people who didn't, instead of going to law school or, or medical school or whatever, said, you know what, I know I'm not going to ever make the kind of money that those kinds of professions make, but it's going to be a hell of a ride to get into, you know, to get into journalism right now. And it, it was, it, it is. I mean, imagine working in Miami, a place like Miami in the 70s and 80s. It, there wasn't a more exciting news town anywhere uh, and, and i mean it, i was very lucky it's quite a scary place i thought as well i mean uh-huh oh yes yes i mean but, that was the height of the kind of cocaine wars and all that stuff presumably. the cocaine yeah. wars we had four civil disturbances uh you know uh, racial uh, you know upheaval uh, where the city was literally on fire i remember one year they were having the super bowl football game there 
And when a whole and the flames from riots were visible from the stadium, I mean, then you had the Mariel boat lift in, in 1979 and 80. You had 125,000 people come arrive on boats from Cuba. I don't know how many communities can absorb uh, that kind of migration that fast and that and that uh, traumatically. And 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 there were among all those wonderful people who came also criminals that Fidel Castro had turned loose and emptied his prisons and put them on the boats and, and all. Uh, so our homicide rate uh, more than doubled in a space of a few months. And that kind of stuff, you're, 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 you look back on it and, and you're right. There were times when it was scary, but, but I think it was good energy. It's good experience. And it also sets you up for, for this little, you know, graduation, faux graduation speech I wrote. You know, I mean, I think I, I, I don't, I, I look back on every all the things that I had to cover as a professional journalist and some of the things I've written about, obviously, in these crazy novels. But it does give you a framework and an outlook that I, I'm not sure all graduation speakers would have. No. <laughs> Can I ask you just parenthetically, because it's in your backyard, have you ever had much to do with Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> I, well, I, I have Mar-a-Lago story. I've been there one time. I went there if I could, I've never told this story, but I'll, I mean, in public, but I'll tell it. I went there one time for a, a benefit for something called the Everglades Foundation, which ever, the, saving the Everglades is sort of one of my, uh, you know, recurring themes in the columns and in the novels. And, and it's a passion of mine. And this this organization raises a lot of money and gives it to different environmental groups. And so they had a big benefit one year at Mar-a-Lago. They ran at Mar-a-Lago and uh you know, just a, you know, one of these fundraisers where you, everybody pays and you get dinner and, and it's, I forget who was playing. I think it was John Mellencamp or somebody. I forget who the musical act was. But anyway, uh, I was living there. the dream. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, I was there and and, uh, and I had my wife with me and, and my stepson who was about, I think he was probably about 15 at the time. <clears throat> and so um, I had to do something on stage. I had to get up and introduce somebody or something. And I came back and I, I was looking for my my wife all around and I see her in a hallway and she's been approached by a, a fellow named Donald J. Trump, who, who is the owner of Mar-a-Lago. He, he was chatting her up and, you know, I'm, I'm not sure she recognized him, knew who he was right away, but then my, my stepson had protectively moved into the picture. And so by the time I, nothing ever happened, but I just thought it was funny that he, I mean, I come out there. There's this is years and years ago, Sam. But sort of hashtag her too. My wife and I laugh about it now because she said, "Yeah, he was kind of, you know, he's kind of following me around and talking to me." And he didn't nothing inappropriate happen. But I thought, well, give it time. <laughs> if I hadn't come <laughs> off stage, who knows? And then I met him one other time. I met, that was the only time at Mar-a-Lago. Okay, nothing. I met him one other time when a book I did uh, called Strip Tease was made into a movie. Demi Moore was in the movie and Burt Reynolds. That's about I remember it well. Yeah. Yes, yes. And they, they actually had a big premiere at the, a theater in New York. And I was invited. It was very exciting because usually the writers, the authors are, are like the last one on the invitation list. You know, they're, they're rolling up the red carpet before the author gets there usually. But they were very nicely invited. me. And there was a party later in the Rainbow Room at Rockefeller Center. Uh, you know, one of those post movie parties where uh, people who had nothing to do with the movie are there. Right. So I'm, there's the receiving line and I go up there and I'm going through the receiving line and, and I recognize two people in front of me. The only two people that are there I have nothing to do with the movie. 
there's meatloaf, <laughs> the musician, <laughs> and there's Donald Trump. <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I'll be honest, I was more excited to meet meatloaf than I was to meet Donald Trump. <laughs> well, so would I be. And, <laughs> Who wouldn't? And so, I mean, Trump was there just because there were a lot of, you know, it was celebrities. It was, you know, a typical movie thing. And he, I'm sure he wanted to see Demi more. Everybody did. I just wanted to talk to meatloaf. But the only trouble was, as I got up to him, I didn't know how to introduce. I didn't know how he wanted to be introduced. Mr. Loaf, meat. I didn't know what to say, you know, because it's an odd it's an odd title. Yeah. So he helped me out. He stuck out his hand. And he just said, hi, I'm Meatloaf. And I just said, hi, I'm Carl. So I didn't have to call him like Mr. Loaf or anything like that. <laughs> That's a relief. The last thing I should ask you before I let you go is just as diehard fans of your novels, including me, will wonder... Is is the new one going to feature Skink and his thoughts on <laughs> his thoughts on the current situation? Skink being, of course, those who don't know, the retired governor of Florida who lives in a lives in the Everglades and eats roadkill but has great teeth. Is I see. He has wonderful teeth. Yeah, he he. Well, he's retired. He actually was. He ran. He escaped from the governor's mansion. He went stark, you know, raving mad. And, and couldn't take the corruption anymore. He just ripped off his clothes and ran into the swamp. And he hasn't been seen since, except in my novels. You know, I thought about that, Sam. I, th I haven't brought him back for a couple of books. And um, b given everything that's happening, the, the, the turmoil in this country right now and the absurdity of the headlines, that I, I'm wondering if I could, I, I, I don't like to bring him on stage unless there's a suitable, you know, a suitable scenario for him to appear in, because he's getting pretty old at this point. But but I, I think that now the time may be right because I can't think of a more appropriate uh, moment for him to reappear. Well, that will give all of us joy if he does. Anyway, Carl, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.